Last week, we looked at the last half of the prayer that Ezra offered after he learned about the unfaithfulness of the Jews in Judea. Jewish men had tied themselves to surrounding paganism by marrying foreign women who worshipped foreign gods. With a broken heart, Ezra cried out to God that he would remember his covenant with the people of Israel, and then Ezra placed himself and the rest of the exiles in God's merciful hands. Ezra knew from his study of the writings of Moses that there was more at stake than just a few Jewish exiles. The fate of humanity may be hanging in the balance if the Messiah's genealogical line would not be preserved. For an added bonus, completely free of charge, we talked about biblical covenants, ending, of course, in the greatest and final covenant, the new covenant, sealed with the blood of Jesus. We talked about how the death of Jesus Christ delivers us, not from the mere consequences of sin, but from sin itself. And we talked about a marshmallow or two. Usually when I bring a message, I like to read the entire passage for the day, and then pray, and then work my way through the passage. But as I was preparing this week, I thought it would be easier to understand today if I read the passage section by section and then talked about the section I just read. So this is what we're going to do this morning. So let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, you have been so good to us. You have been so gracious to us, and you have shown us such exceeding mercy. And it's easy to forget, but on this day that in our culture we set aside as thanksgiving, we want to be thankful for each of these things in a refreshing way this morning. We want not to forget your infinite mercy and your infinite grace and your infinite love toward us. Help us to have thankful hearts, not to take for granted all that you've given to us and all that you've provided and offered to us. This morning, as we look into your word again, I pray that you would open our eyes and your hearts and our hearts to the truth that you have placed there by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you will turn in your Bibles to Ezra and chapter 10. It's the final book, or sorry, the final chapter of the book of Ezra. Next week, uh, Lord willing, we will uh, do another summary for the second part of this great two-part book, Ezra and Nehemiah, to find out, again, we'll, we'll go way up in the air and have an overview. What is God doing? Why is it that God caused these books to be inspired and place them in his word? What is he trying to teach us in the grand scheme of his great plan of redemption for mankind? For this morning, I just have a quick question. How many of you have come here this morning to be entertained? One. Okay, just Crystal. (laughs) I'm so thankful. Crystal, you are dismissed. (laughs) Um, I'm not here this morning to entertain you. 
This passage is, again, a difficult passage. I'm here this morning. I just want the Holy Spirit to be our teacher as we work through the details of his word. And I pray that he is moving in your hearts to make this teaching of his word something that can impact you today and in the days to come. Ezra chapter 10 is quite controversial, and we'll talk about that. I'm not going to avoid the controversy in Ezra chapter 10, because it involves a very hard decision that these people had to make. And many of you have come to me, um, and we've talked about this throughout the last few weeks. It's been good. At the beginning of Ezra chapter 10, the people decide that they're going to forsake their sin. So let's read Ezra chapter 10 and just the first verse. Now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women and children gathered to him from Israel for the people wept very bitterly. You can see the example that Ezra's confession was for the people of Israel. And the power of Ezra's confession is not merely in his words. Although there is no truth, some of you are going to be bothered by this statement, but bear with me for a moment. Although there is no truth to be found in emotion itself, every once in a while the Bible records the emotional reaction of someone to show how that person was shaken by the truth. Often this is sorrow due to sin. Don't misunderstand me. Emotions can be a true and powerful indicator of events and circumstances in our lives, but that is never where we ought to go first to find truth. For example, let's suppose you get a phone call telling you that someone you love has been badly injured in a car accident you instantly have an emotional reaction that is real and powerful. Then, 10 minutes later, you get another phone call explaining that there has been a mistake and your loved one escaped the accident without injury. Now you are flooded with relief. The emotions you felt with the first phone call were powerful and they were real, but they were based on faulty information and were in no way a true guide as to what actually took place in reality. As Christians, we must base our lives on the truth as of first importance, not how we feel about something. That doesn't mean we ignore our emotions. It just means that they are secondary. Truth and truth alone should determine our commitment to what we believe. In the previous chapter, chapter 9 of Ezra, Ezra brought forth his prayer from the depth of his heart, here evidenced by weeping and bowing down before the house of God. And the people also then are struck by the conviction of sin. I think we can see here the powerful influence a leader can have. And we are not talking about salvation here in this passage, but a society or a culture can be turned 
toward good or evil, depending on their leader, as can a church. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 4 says, By justice, a king gives a country stability, but those who are greedy for bribes tear it down. And I wasn't thinking of any particular federal leader when I chose this quote. A good example of this principle is the king of Nineveh when Jonah preached judgment to that city. Let's read Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Again, this is not a passage about personal salvation but it, is, it certainly shows how an evil society full of violence can be turned around when the leader hears the word of the Lord and is convicted of sin and responds appropriately. And the Jews in today's passage sorrowed over the sin of the covenant community just as Ezra had done by following his lead. The old Puritan, John Trapp, thought of confession as a purging of sin. Listen to the word picture he paints describing sin and confession. Confession of sin is the soul's vomit, which is the harshest kind of medicine, but the most health-bringing. This the devil knows, and therefore... He holds the lips closed that the heart may not disburden itself by so wholesome an evacuation. That paints maybe too much of a picture for me, but it really is a powerful statement as to the infection of sin and what confession does to begin to deal with it. Also, listen to the words of William Newton Blair. And he wrote a book describing the great Korean revival of the early 1900s. We may have our theories of the desirability or undesirability of public confession of sin. I have had mine, but I know that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession and no power on earth can stop it. In the next couple verses, let's read uh, verses 2 through 4. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives 
from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So Shechaniah stands up and he advises the actions of repentance to the people. Feeling broken about their sin was a good first step. In fact, it was a necessary first step. When God's Spirit moves in our hearts, convicting us of sin, grief and brokenness are an appropriate response. Let's read what the Apostle Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 8 through 10. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a little while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. There are several things of importance to note about this passage in 2 Corinthians that relate to our passage in Ezra chapter 10 today. Number one, notice that God used his inspired word to bring conviction to the hearts of the Corinthian believers. One of the mighty works of scripture is conviction of sin. We need to be in God's word constantly to be made sensitive to this work of God's Spirit. There's an old quote, sin keeps us from the Bible and the Bible keeps us from sin. Number two, sorrow is temporary. If we ignore our feelings of guilt long enough, it can easily fade away. Number three, sorrow that leads to repentance is godly sorrow leading to deliverance from sin. And finally, number four, the world offers a kind of counterfeit sorrow that leads to death. This is sorrow that leads to discouragement rather than repentance. And it seems that this present brokenness in our passage over sin is the work of God's Spirit among the Jews. And I think this is why Shechaniah says, now there is hope in Israel. Grief over sin is like the dark cloud through which the light of God's forgiveness can shine as hope to the downcast soul. And then an exceedingly strong command is given. A solution was offered wherein not only would the wives be put away, 
but also the children born to these foreign women. It is such a strong command that some theologians think that this was actually excessive zeal, going beyond God's will and causing great harm. Several of you over the past few weeks have mentioned a similar discomfort with the action taken by the Jews here to me in personal conversation. Although you can hold this view if you so choose, I just don't see it that way, and I'll try to explain why. This action rails against our modern sensibilities. How could this possibly be the right thing to do? Separating husbands from wives and children from fathers seems cruel. These are troubling measures taken by the Jews. And as Christians, we ought not to hide behind platitudes. In fact, just like I mentioned, many of you have brought up to me in personal discussions the fact that you're not sure what to think about this mass divorce authorized by Ezra. There is so much I could say about this. I'll limit myself to just a few points. There's more we can talk about in personal discussions, if you wish. Often, the people that are critical of the actions of the Israelites, or God for that matter, in this passage, are the same people that hold to a much lower view of marriage than traditional Jews or Christians. The traditional Christian view of marriage is one man and one woman until death. I'm suspicious that many skeptics hold to a no-fault view of divorce that, when put into law, has led to hundreds of thousands of divorces, most with affected children. On the other hand, the actions in Ezra 10 led to a maximum of 114 marriages being dissolved. Those who live in glass houses should not throw stones. Secondly, these actions on the part of the Jews were an exception to the rule, and therefore they set no precedent for future actions regarding the sanctity of marriage. In fact, history tells us that many of these same men divorced, divorced their Jewish wives in order to marry the foreign women. To be indignant on their behalf would be the height of hypocrisy. Finally, in a sin-cursed world, sometimes the only choice left is between the lesser of evils. The choice facing these Jews was like this. They could turn a blind eye to these unlawful marriages and risk intermingling to a degree that would make the coming of the Messiah impossible or at least very difficult to detect. And this is to say nothing of the debauchery these foreign religions brought about, which led to untold suffering. Or they could do the hard thing and dissolve these 114 marriages to bring about countless blessings for hundreds or even thousands of generations to come. Several more things could be said, but we'll leave it at that. To close out this issue this morning, I want to give us a quote from Matthew Henry as to the applicability of these extreme actions 
in our own lives today. Quote, As to us now, it is certain that sin must be put away. A bill of divorce must be given to sin with a resolution never to have anything more to do with it, though it be dear as the wife of thy bosom, nay, as a right eye or a right hand. Otherwise, there is no pardon and no peace. Unquote. And you might say, those are extreme actions. And you'd be right. If these extreme actions are a lesson to us about how to deal with sin, then the Jews got it exactly right. So the men are exhorted to do what is right and are supported in their difficult task. Very interestingly, it seems as though Shechaniah, the man who proposed this extreme solution himself, although he was not guilty of marrying a pagan woman, his father was, and his uncles were, as we see from the list of names given later in chapter 10. This is a man that had first-hand knowledge of the suffering caused by these disobedient marriages. He wasn't merely a man on the outside looking in and passing judgment. So Ezra issues a proclamation. He calls upon the people to swear an oath. The counsel of Shechaniah seemed good to Ezra. Let's read verses 5 through 8. Then Ezra arose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. Ezra began with the leaders, particularly the priests. He expected them to make things right with God first. And his authority is immediately put to the test. Remember, Ezra was given great civil authority by King Artaxerxes back in chapter 7. Remember, Artaxerxes said, you teach the law, you enforce the law, whatever you have to do to enforce the law of your God, you, you have my authority to do it. And he puts that authority to use by making the people fulfill the oath they had previously made. A law without enforcement is like a lion without teeth. And so the people repent. Let's read verses 9 through 11. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, 
And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from pagan wives. And the people give a unified response. Just like the Israelites whom Moses led out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, the people agree to follow the law. Let's just flip back to Exodus chapter 24. And just one verse, verse 3. Exodus Chapter 24, verse 3. Moses had just given God's law to the Israelites and was preparing to go up Mount Sinai to get further instructions, particularly regarding the building of the tabernacle, but other things as well. So, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Keep your thumb there in your Bibles. With this, they enter into a covenant relationship with Jehovah God. We all remember how that turned out. Forty days later, a little over a month, the Israelites openly and proudly shattered at least the first two of the Ten Commandments by building and worshiping a golden calf. I wish I could say that this time was different, but it wasn't. We read in the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 13, that the Israelites were at it again. The men had married foreign women. Do you remember, I thought of this, Lauren, I have, to, I have to bring you into this. I thought of this when I saw your beard this, this week. Do you remember what Ezra did when he found out about these foreign wives? He tore hair out of his own beard in grief. <laughs> when Nehemiah found out, you know what he did? He found the guilty men and he tore the hair out of their beards. <laughs> So go Nehemiah. You can see the difference in the personalities of Ezra and Nehemiah, can't you? Ezra's word to the people is clear and strong. He called the people to confession and repentance. These are two different things, confession and repentance, that are often conflated in our minds. Confession is simply telling God about your sin and admitting that you are guilty. Repentance is turning your back on it and forsaking it to pursue righteousness. And what is the response of the assembly? The people immediately answer with a loud voice in agreement to Ezra. Let's read verses 12 through 15. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, so we must do. But there are many people. It is the season for heavy rain. 
and we are not able to stand outside. Nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. Please, let the leaders of our entire assembly stand, and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. Let's take a moment to compare the response in verse 12 of today's text with the passage we read earlier from Exodus 24. All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Yes, as you have said, so we must do. Today's Thanksgiving. If there's one thing I would hope that you're thankful for this morning is the incredible sustaining power of the Holy Spirit of God. These folks were standing before a mountain on which the presence of God smoked and burned and the ground shook. And I, th I always tell myself, if I would have been there, I would have never sinned again. But I would have been just like them. But aren't we privileged today as those who have trusted Jesus Christ that he has given us his spirit to sustain us in a way that even that fiery mountains of Sinai could not. And I want you to be thankful for this this morning. The people ask Ezra for time to make things right. This was necessary because so many people were involved in this sin. The principle was agreed on with very little opposition. The nature of the opposition of the four men listed in verses 15, verse 15, it's, it's unknown. Um, it's difficult to tell from the text whether they are opposing putting away the foreign wives or whether they're opposing the extra time that they've asked for. It's hard to tell. And then each case is examined individually over a three-month period. Let's read verses 16 and 17. Then the descendants of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest, with certain heads of the father's households, were set apart by the father's households, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. And Ezra accepts this wise delay. After all, these were not just statistics that needed to be dealt with. Every one of these cases involved individuals, and each case was unique. Ezra took care to evaluate each specific marriage. He did not flippantly pass judgment on the whole assembly. The priests that married foreign women are mentioned first. By the law of Moses, it was explicitly forbidden for any priest to marry outside ethnic Israel. 
We'll talk more about this in a bit. The common consensus among Jewish rabbis, both ancient and modern, is that the pagan wives during this delay were given a choice to either enter the covenant relationship with the God of Israel or take any children that they may have and dissolve the marriage. In the end, we don't know exactly how many divorces were enacted in this process. We only know that 114 marriages had occurred between Jewish men and foreign women. Probably most, if not all, of these marriages were dissolved. And the whole process takes many, many weeks. By the way, it was less than one half of 1% of the people who were guilty of this pagan intermarriage. One dissolved marriage is painful enough. But compare this to the divorce rate in Canada today. In the New Testament, believers are commanded to marry within the faith. I think that's one of the reasons that the marriage laws for priests in the Old Testament were so important. They were a shadow of the true priesthood that would be established by Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. For the Christian, the only foreigner is the non-believer. The Apostle Peter, in his first epistle, chapter 2, calls believers a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. We are representatives of God's holiness and God's kingdom on earth. Being yoked together in marriage or otherwise to unbelievers is explicitly condemned in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. However, Paul specifically commanded that if a believer is already married to an unbeliever, they are to remain in the marriage, if at all possible, both for the possibility of a witness to the unbelieving spouse and for the benefit it brings to the children. You can read that and study it for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 12 through 17. Then the guilty are listed by name. This was not a great way to have your name recorded in the best-selling book of all time. Some of you are looking at all of the scripture we have to finish yet today, and you're thinking, this guy is going to be here for like another two and a half hours, and you're right. Crystal, you're dismissed. No, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. We're going to read verses 18 and 19, and then we're going to read verse 44, and then we're going to close. So, verses 18 and 19. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brothers, Maaseah, Eliezer, Yarib, and Gedaliah. And they gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. Remember last week, some of you that were here, I mentioned that it seemed to me that this sin was not done in ignorance. Well, verse 19 confirms this to be the case. According to the book of Leviticus, 
For a sin done in ignorance, the offering was not a ram, but a goat. These men knew they had done wrong. They chose to do wrong. And now they were to pay the price. The sacrifice was to be made. Let's close this morning with a quote. Oh, did I read verse 44? don't think so. Listen to how the book of Ezra ends. All these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And then our heart breaks, doesn't it? Let's close this morning with a quote from the great theologian F.B. Meyer. In his conclusion to his commentary on this particular passage. Let us at least separate ourselves after the manner of Christ, who frequented the temple, acknowledged the state, accepted invitations to great houses, but his heart and speech always revolved about his father. At this point, Ezra disappears from the biblical record for over a decade. When he appears again in the book of Nehemiah, his passion then was the same as it was at the end of, book of, at the, end of the book of Ezra. To transform the culture by bringing them the word of God. Perhaps you have been moved in your heart this morning regarding sin in your own life. God perhaps is even now granting you sorrow over some cherished sin. Do not leave it unconfessed. Do not remain wedded to it while it continues to destroy you and your family. It's time to put it away once and for all at the cross of Christ. Perhaps you're married to alcoholism. Perhaps you're married to drug use. Perhaps you're married to pornography or pride or gossip or greed. I don't know. Divorce yourself from it by the power of the cross. Divorce yourself from it by the power of the empty tomb. I'll not lie to you. It is an extreme action and a painful one but you will never regret it. If the church is to have any voice during these dark times, it needs to begin with individuals vomiting up their sin in confession and pursuing holiness like we have never done before. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful that you have been so good to us. You have been so good to us that we have even taken for granted your grace. We have taken for granted your mercy. We have taken for granted your love. Father, we don't want to be a people that are ungrateful. Would you create in us the spirit of gratitude? Help us to be thankful for all that you have by your generous hand, through riches in Christ, to be truly thankful in our hearts. 
Father, in a group this size, there are many of us that are harboring sins. We, would, we, we even cherish them. We hate them and we cherish them as believers. I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts that we might be purged of these through the work of Christ on the cross and that we might have the power to live in pursuit of your righteousness by the work of the power of the empty tomb. I pray that not a single heart would be untouched by the power of your word this morning. And as we go from here, I pray that your word would dwell in us so richly that every area of our life is impacted and that we too might be a light in a very dark world, but only through the power of your grace. We pray these things and thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.